Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor at large at Sports Pro, and I'm delighted to have with me again the Sports Pro Print Editor, Michael Long. Hi, Mike. Hi, Owen. Hi, everyone. Good to be back. We did say we'd be back, and we're back. How's that? And I also noticed last week, Mike, I forgot to introduce myself because the link used to have my name in it. Well, I think at this stage in your career, Aaron, you need no introduction anyway. So just run with it. Yeah, but it's, it's a courtesy. We're also going to be hearing from Mark Waller, who is the EVP of International at the NFL. Uh, he's going to be talking about the London Games, upcoming games and events in Mexico and in countries around the world. Um, possible new strands to the NFL's global strategy. But um, see, anyway, Mike, you have had a week in the relatively sunny climbs of Monaco, Monte Carlo, for the Sportel Media mm-hmm. Convention. Mm, glorious, glorious sunshine, mid 20 degrees. What more could the sports industry want? Yeah, and back to winter. We've just gone straight from summer to winter here in the UK. Mm. Um, but how, what, what were some of your observations from Sportel? Unbelievably, since I am eight years down at Sports Pro, this was my first appearance at Sportel Monaco. So, you know, I'm going on other people's accounts as opposed to my own experiences. Um, but by all accounts, it was a rather more subdued affair this year. You know, not a huge amount of clamour on the on the um, conference floor for some of the major rights out there due to perhaps a bit of a lull in, in rights cycles, um, but certainly a couple of notable absentees. As you'll know, Owen, MP and Silver is going through a bit of a rough patch at the moment, and they weren't there this year. I believe it was the the end of uh, the week before Sportel that their UK operation was wound up. I understand there's a you know they have some operations still going on in mm. Asia, but um, yeah, no MP and Silver party. Yeah, and I think a lot of um, you know a lot of the commentary I've seen since was talking about the digital. Mm. Um, and the impact that that's having on not not confidence so much, but you know that there might be a bit of a kind of holding pattern going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I would I would agree. I'd echo that. I think um, obviously, well, certainly a knock to the confidence of the agency business, and certainly a bit of a uh, rocket up in terms of you know people needing to get a bit more creative and some of the old uh, you know bumper contracts that were on offer before, uh, perhaps not there in this in this kind of new digital first direct to consumer landscape that we're in um but obviously yes i think disruption uh from a digital standpoint was uh you know a, a key theme this year and obviously on on the uh on monday discovery and pga tour announced the launch of their new golf tv service um from next year that was one of the um the bigger announcements um DAZN, obviously making moves in various places, um, 11 sports, of course, on the cover of Sports Pro. So they uh, were, were certainly front and centre of conversations and, and in people's kind of minds and in their hands throughout the event. A word on Peter Hutton, the, uh, uh, what's his what's his job title, Owen? I think, it's, is it Global Director of Live, Global yeah. Director of Live Sports? Yeah, yeah. Well, a very smiley approachable man of course as always 
Um, but a very busy man as well, obviously. Spotted him on numerous occasions, darting from you know meetings to meetings, uh, conversations to conversations, everybody wanting, uh, wanting his ear. So yeah, stay tuned for what Facebook has in store. Uh, one of the meetings he did have was with the guys at Sail GP, so Larry Ellison's new uh, sailing series um, launching next year. Yeah, I think digital and uh, and, and disruption certainly the uh, the kind of order of the day. Yeah, you mentioned the digital environment and direct to consumer propositions, and you were talking very briefly about the Golf TV launch at the start of last week. Obviously, built on the two billion. 12-year deal that the PGA Tour signed with Discovery uh, over the summer. Alex Kaplan, who's the president and general manager of Discovery Golf and will be heading up the the Golf TV venture, spoke to uh, Nick Friend in the Sports Pro team uh, last week just after that launch. So if you want to find out anything about that, then uh, then hasten over to sportspromedia.com. Alex as well will be joining Rick Anderson, who's the chief media officer for the PGA Tour at the Sports Pro OTT Summit at the end of this month, probably, as you're listening, end of November, 28th and 29th of November in Madrid. Head over to sportspro-ott.com to find out how you can join us and a whole load of people who we've talked about before. Right, so that was that was Sportel. Sadly, events elsewhere in the world in the last week have been uh, a little bit more on the dramatic and traumatic side. Um, over the weekend here in the UK, we had the tragic death of Leicester City owner uh, and King Power owner, Vishay Srivanaprava and members of his staff. Real shock for real shock for the people of Leicester primarily, I think, Mike. It was it was something that brought out a, a strength of feeling that I don't know. It, it, I mean, we obviously know the journey that they've been on as a football club mm. in the last decade um, under the ownership of, of that family and you know, and, and with the, the backing that they have from the King Power uh, duty-free empire and, and so on. But I think the, the 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 kind of the affection with which he was held by people in the local area was, was really something to behold. Yeah. Um, the outpouring of, of grief well, yeah, you know, has, think... been, has been incredibly moving. It's, it's obviously, it's someone who really worked very hard in that community and, and, you know, whatever else he did in his business life. And, you know, he was a very successful man, but he was... Um, Someone who who worked really hard to to make sure that he was um, creating something with Leicester rather than just yeah. extracting something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just your kind of ordinary or you know out of touch kind of uh, foreign owner, I suppose, as as some of the as some of the Premier League uh, owners are perhaps. Um, certainly, some of the you know the tributes that have come in just praising his his generosity and the work that he did in the community. And obviously, I think as you said. You know his his work not only touched kind of Leicester fans, but you know Premier League flat fans as well. Uh, incredible story of of you know uh, Leicester's rise and and obviously going on as a five thousand to one shot to to win the Premier League. And you know he was obviously instrumental in that. You know his is obviously a kind of lasting legacy. And as a Southampton fan, as I am, um, you know I kind of know the impact of of an owner coming in. Purchasing a club, as as Marcus Lieber did, a Swiss businessman, bought Southampton back in 2009. He sadly passed away a year later. But, you know, his influence was felt um, in the kind of rise that Southampton had from the lower leagues into the Premier League to become, you know, top half Premier League club, well-run club, well-respected club. You know, he's fondly remembered by all, and I'm sure, sure the owner 
uh, of Leicester City uh, will be for years to come. Uh, another another sad loss for the industry. Um, away from that and but, but staying in football, uh, FIFA held their council meeting um, last week. It was in uh, Kigali in Rwanda. Under under discussion, I mean, the thing that was was dominating the discussion really were these plans for a complete revamp of the World Club calendar with the expansion of the Club World Cup and its uh, its its institution as an annual proper pan global event in the summer um, in the mould of a of a major national team tournament. Obviously, this was uh, the result of a, a surprise intervention, a surprise offer earlier this year from SoftBank or a consortium that we believe is, is was led by SoftBank um, and their their um, vision fund, twenty five billion dollar offer to to buy up the rights for twelve years. Um, mm-hmm. Not very popular with UEFA, who saw it as a direct challenge to the UEFA Champions League or the primacy of the UEFA Champions League. Not very popular with some of the other uh, club bodies who couldn't see the value in adding more games to an already crowded global uh, soccer calendar. Uh, not very popular with anyone who had been following the news of recent weeks and the uh, the assassination of the uh, American-based journalist uh, Tamal Khashoggi uh, in Turkey. Saudi money very much intertwined with the, the SoftBank Vision Fund, but also uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, widely seen as a kind of driving force behind this project. A lot of this is wrapped up as well in the kind of spoiling efforts around the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. And, you know, there's a whole political dimension to it that, that gets quite ugly quite fast. But uh, UEFA basically threatened to walk out of the voting session, which would have been a, a bit of a, a bloody nose for Gianni Infantino. And there were a whole uh, series of, uh, of, of discussions through the week, some late night talks, I believe on Thursday, um, that resulted in a task force being created basically this being kicked into the long grass for another few months yeah so this is this has been put on hold until is it next march in in miami i think the next fifa council meeting is so there'll be more deliberations going on behind the scenes um you know obviously as you as you as you say there's a number of kind of things going on here there's the saudi arabia's kind of broader political kind of power plays going on in the region obviously um head to head with with Qatar uh, and then there's the internal kind of politics of, of world soccer as well uh, Europe versus the rest of the world I suppose and FIFA wanting to you know champion the, the cause of, of other regions outside of Europe where you know a lot of the, the cash is obviously stockpiled. It's interesting to contrast this with what's going on at national team level where you are seeing a bit more coordination of calendars a little bit more coordination of interests obviously mm. the um the closer and closer ties between CONCACAF and, and CONMEBOL have, have, have kind of clarified a lot of things there and, and possibly will continue to do so. I believe the Copper America moved to, yeah, it's going to move to a, a the same cycle as the um, European Championship um, as of the next but one tournament, which will, uh, you know, help with, with players' commitments and so on, provide a little bit more clarity there. But the club game, you bring in a lot more competing interests, I guess. And we're, we're sitting here with a, a very Eurocentric perspective. And the idea of um, the Champions League being the pinnacle of the game is is pretty well established here. It's hard to see how 
as a, an Asian team or an African team or even South American team, and you think that's somewhere that historically was a, a major power base for, for club soccer, uh, it's hard to see where you have the scope for progress. As we see in the Club World Cup, or, or perhaps we don't see it, there, there's certainly some strong brands out there outside of European the European game. Yeah, like, of course. You, I mean, the... the yeah, I mean the Club World Cup is really half a tournament at the moment, you know, and it's and it kind of it reinforces some of the the uh, the existing hierarchies. You know, the European club turns up kind of two thirds of the way through, and even then they play um, usually the South American side in the final. So it's not it's hard to see how you make more of the AFC Champions League and the you know African Champions League and so on by by having that set up in place at the same time. The objections that people have to this tournament and more more pertinently the way that it's being put together are are very uh, very easy to um very easy to empathize with and i think just selling off selling off the the opportunity to put something like this together and then just kind of planting it right over the top mm. of a very dense uh very dense very delicately constructed football calendar it's it's it is, it's not not really the way that things get done. <laughs> no, but it, but there's hypocrisy involved as well. I mean, you, you know, UEFA and uh, you know they've been selling the soul of of European football for for many years now, and and uh, you know obviously they they want to preserve their their own interests. Yeah, there's there's a bit of um, there's a bit of concern about workloads, and there's a bit of uh, resentment about about the way that it's gone about. And then, you know the the motivating factor. Let's let's be frank as well is that Gianni Infantino at some point in the next few months is going to have to start thinking about a, a re-election campaign, which will conclude uh, next year. Have I got that right? I think so. I think he's so. serving out the remainder of, um, of, of Seth, Blatter's, Seth Blatter's term. And, you know, he has promised uh, a vast increase in, in revenues for, for FIFA members. And if somebody arrives with $25 billion over 12 years, can then distribute to those members then you're probably yeah. going to look a lot longer at that proposal than maybe some of the other stakeholders in, in world football are going to look at it, um, particularly, you know, the, the wealthiest teams in the world. Of course, of course. But anyway, but, it's, there's, there's an awful lot to it. And I mean, this is even before we consider the, um, I don't know, is it audacity? Is it bravery? Is it naivety about the interplay between all of these things uh, about, you know, an ostensibly Saudi-backed tournament mm-hmm. um, being... And, you know, tr- trying to push that through in a week where we are talking about the role of, of Saudi Arabia on the global stage. I mean, we should mention that, that FIFA are not alone in having to revisit their, uh, their, their, their ties with, with Saudi Arabia with this Vision 2030 project um, that's, been, uh, that's been advanced by MBS, Mike. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It seems that there's, there's you know, as... More and more uh, rights holders have looked at the kingdom as a, you know, as a as a viable place to stage their events, and obviously money talks on that that front. You know, there there've been more and more entities having to, uh, you know, to quote monitor the situation as as the uh, the ramifications of the murder of Khashoggi kind of uh, play out. Um, obviously, in in recent months, they, you know, Saudi Arabia has hosted squash events, motor racing events, boxing, WWE. 
some of the other events on the horizon. You've got um, Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal playing a, 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 an exhibition match out there in December, or they're due to Formula E heading their golf's European tour. So yeah, but as you say, FIFA is certainly not alone, and a number of different uh, organisations now kind of monitoring the situation, playing the wait and see card, and just seeing how this plays out. So it's going to be an interesting, uh, interesting to see how whether any. Uh, any of these organisations put ethics before before dollars, as so rarely happens in sport and in, in most industries. I I wouldn't hold my breath for a mass withdrawal from Saudi Arabia, but there might be some some people who who do look again at, yeah, at well, what it, they have planned and the way they have planned to do it. So in, interestingly, within the sports world, there has been one one certainly a notable organisation that has uh, kind of. Um, Address this. Um, the Endeavor Group, obviously the parent company of, of IMG, um, WME, and the and the UFC, uh, they kind of walked away from a from a deal that was purportedly on the table of four hundred million dollars investment from from the Saudi government. So they're certainly one that has kind of rebuked the the kingdom and is taking action. Uh, and as you say, whether whether others will follow suit remains to be seen. Anyway, speaking of the interplay between sport and politics a little bit less of a direct link in this case but a sorry postscript or a, a concerning postscript the election in brazil of course the the host of the world cup in 2014 and the olympic games in 2016 um named to host both of those tournaments as the kind of beacon of hope as a, a kind of leader of, of a free south america free and prosperous south america uh, about a decade ago not so much now. Um, divided country, which has elected uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who is a, I mean, to call him a Trumpian figure is probably to do him, um, do him a little bit too much credit. He was someone who was very much on the fringes of uh, of Brazilian discourse until not long ago. He's spoken in favour of torture. He's spoken against kind of uh, LGBT rights in Brazil, which have been quite hard fought in in some cases. Hugely disparaging comments about about women. Um, as well, and yeah. fellow fellow politicians. Yeah, he's spoken out in the past in favour of, or you know, wistfully about the um, the old military regime uh, in the seventies and eighties. So it's um, yeah, worrying times for for Brazil, worrying times for the region. There has been a, an involvement in from sport in this episode. Uh, a remarkable number of Brazilian footballers. Obviously, you know, we don't need to talk about the profile of. Of Brazilian players uh, domestically, um, but the likes of Rivaldo, uh, Ronaldinho, uh, Kaká, um, all of them former World Players of the Year. It's it's quite a long list. Yeah, yeah. It's quite a long list of Brazilian players, and there've been various um, various uh, theories put forward as to why this is the case. But yeah, certainly it's uh, it's it's a delicate period in the history of. of Brazilian politics and it's it's got a little bit more complicated as well uh, in the last few days but um far cry from the from the Brazil of what was it 2008 2009 when they when they won the Olympics and as you say it was this emerging force and globally uh really outward looking you know internationalist kind of nation uh, welcoming the world to its shores with two of the you know to the world's two biggest sports events 
you know, and after the the Trevise and the and the and the corruption scandals of you know the Operation Car Wash and everything that 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 surrounded uh, Rio 2016 and the fallout from from the you know some of the corruption scandals around uh, the Bra- uh, Brazilian Football Confederation and things to then this this almost seems like just another it's a new low isn't it mm, yeah and obviously this is a you know it's a country we, we won't dwell on this too long because we're not we're not political scientists but um it's a country of a couple of hundred million people there's uh, all sorts of complexities socially and, and economically and racially that that we don't really have parallels for in, in other parts of the world but you do just hope that there can be some more constructive route out of some of the difficulties that they've had in the in the time ahead and you hope that yeah that it, it can become that kind of uh that beacon of positivity that it was not that long ago but we shall see right that is um that's enough for quite a heavy part one we're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna lighten the tone a little bit um after this enjoying this sports pro podcast well we're also the sports industry leader in print digital and events head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features news and interviews from the business of sport help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else get inside the industry with sports pro welcome back to the sports pro podcast um don't know if you needed to lie down or anything after that first um first section um ideas but i we'll see how we get on here return because that was uh that was that was heavy going that that part one wasn't it it was quite heavy going and we'll try and keep the tone a bit lighter here just as a a reward to everyone for persevering but uh yeah mike any any other any other sports industry happenings of note that uh that you would like to discuss um well, on the so in America, let's talk about America because we don't talk about America enough these days. No, and certainly not in political terms. No, absolutely not. But no, speaking of America and obviously a uh, major event coming up there, LA 2028, um, big deal they signed towards the end of last week. So their commercial joint venture uh, with the um, United States Olympic Committee has awarded the contract sponsorships sales contract to Legends Hospitality, which is called, of course, the uh, the venture established by is it the Dallas Cowboys and the and the New York Yankees. I mm. tasked uh, them with evaluating sponsorships, selling sponsorships, uh, consultancy. Tasked them with raising or helping to raise the two point five billion dollars in sponsorship revenue that um, LA twenty twenty eight is targeting, which would be you know, one of the largest kind of sponsorship halls of any Olympic Games, I believe. Obviously, Tokyo is doing its best to smash through the uh, any kind of barriers that have previously been set on that front. They're heavily linked and widely known within the LA market. They work with uh, LAFC and they're working on selling various assets around the LA Rams and um how am I forgetting? Chargers. Chargers. The Chargers, their new stadium in uh, in Inglewood. So that's a that's a big new deal, and obviously a big new body of work for Kathy Carter, the former head of Soccer United Marketing, the commercial arm of MLS, who joined LA Twenty Twenty Eight and their joint venture uh, with the USFC uh, a couple of weeks ago. So yeah, that's I, I think that's a big deal. Owen. Certainly sounds it. Uh, the appointment of Kathy Carter deserves yeah. some comment at least 
obviously ran for president of US soccer. She did. was not successful in that endeavor, um, but retains an awful lot of contacts in that particular space. A lot of sponsorship money needs to be raised by LA 2028. A lot of sponsorship money needs to be raised by the organizers of the United 2026 World Cup uh, in the US, Canada and Mexico. So I would imagine, you know, there's going to have to be a lot of a lot of brunches, a lot of uh, conference calls, a lot of smoothing things over if they start going after the same sponsorship dollars over that period. And there might be, hey, some opportunities to be constructive and, uh, you know, and, and, and create bridges from one event to the next in, in American sport. Indeed, indeed. Um, talking of American sport, and this is a sign of how busy it's been. This is a sign of how busy the news has been anyway. The World Series, that happened. That happened more or less entirely in, over the course oh, of the last oh, week. Yeah. Won by uh, the Boston Red Sox, who went, what, 90 years without winning a World Series and now are doing it like every other year. And the Dodgers are, are essentially losing World Series every year. Am I right in saying there's two two on the bounce now? Yeah, you might be right in saying that. I don't know. I haven't checked. Um, but the Dodgers, the Dodgers and, uh, and Boston, there was a lot of talk going into this series about what a... Uh, what an exciting series it was for MLB in terms of media interest with, you know, the, the perhaps the biggest intercity rivalry or certainly one of the biggest intercity rivalries, certainly the biggest, um, the biggest transcontinental rivalry in American sport between Boston and L.A., two of its biggest media markets, certainly in baseball terms, two of its biggest, you know, most followed teams. Obviously, we'd already had the Yankees and the Red Sox in the in the playoffs. Still a little bit early to to reflect too much on on TV ratings and such, not least because, you know, they, they're showing they're following the kind of general downward trend in, in linear TV ratings. And I don't know how much that can really tell us. I mean, it's it's down on the spike that we saw when the Chicago Cubs won the other year. But it's still it's it's following the kind of trend that we'd seen prior to that. Was there anything else that you saw that was notable? I mean, while, while we're on the subject of linear tv and and scheduling and all the rest of it having a seven hour game is that something mm -hmm. do you lean into that if you're mlb or do you think but well, it isn't it is an interesting one obviously the 20th 20ification uh, that's not a word but it is a word now the shortening of of sport the 2020 vacation 2020 vacation yeah okay. sorry uh let's go with that of sport is obviously a, a huge talking point you know shorter formats and it's one that the, the pace of play and the and the length of, of games is is something that MLB is kind of grappling with. Uh, and a seven-hour World Series game, for all intents and purposes, would, you know, it would put off the young people, you know, the young, the, the millennials, the Gen Zs, who have no interest in spending seven hours uh, doing anything but uh, playing esports and watching netflix or whatever they do these days can you engage uh, fans with a seven hour game i'm of the opinion that i think you can following the story uh, or following the the game and the conversation through twitter it had the feel of uh something was building as you know a golf grand slam does or a long tennis match does something was building the conversation around it was brewing and there was a feel that it was a real historic moment happening and who knows whether that drew people into actually watching the live stream or the linear broadcast or whatever it may be but it certainly certainly had the sense that there was a a, a momentous moment taking place and that's what you want isn't it 
It is. It is. It's. It's a difficult one for for any any sports body that's involved in longer form sport. And I don't know that baseball is necessarily that long form. I mean, the, the typical game is is roughly the same length as a twenty twenty, but um, but it has this capacity to kind of run and run. Um, ironically, that game happening in the same week as Wimbledon announced that it will be capping five set matches at twelve all and going to tie break. Um, so uh, John Isner, John Isner's airtime will be dramatically cut. But um, it's, I guess it's the balance that everybody has to strike. Is, is do you, how far do you change the the fundamentals of how your sport operates to cope with the passing demands of, uh, of consumer media? One way in which they have embraced the, the passing demands of consumer media is um, the sponsorship deal that they've signed in the past couple of years for the playoffs with YouTube TV. Some interesting crossovers this time on the sponsorship side. Google Assistant in the commentary box. Mm-hmm. What have they been up to? Well, they've been, as far as I can tell, the play-by-play announcers on uh, on American television have been asking Google questions on air, like who was the last person to score, you know, hit two runs. Is this because they at the are... Of the third in the game five. Is this because they're no good at their jobs or they're just showcasing... I think it's. A, I think technology. well, both of those things could be possible. I don't want to impugn somebody else's professionalism, and given some of the um, on-the-run fact-checking that we're known to do uh, on this program, um, I can certainly sympathise with anybody who might want to ask Google a question in the middle of a broadcast. But um, it is a it is a sponsorship deal. We should invest. Perhaps we should. Perhaps we should. But it is a sponsorship deal, as far as I'm aware. It's part of that. Part of that partnership with the uh, the Google-owned YouTube TV, so they are, um, you know, they're doing what they can to embrace uh, embrace change in America's pastime. But um, yeah, a series that that shows again kind of the potential, um, the scale, and also the challenges that exist for Major League Baseball uh, in 2018 and beyond. Um, speaking of which, they're going to be here next year. They're playing at uh, at the London Stadium, I believe, in the summer of 2019. Um, anybody who wants to find out a little bit more about that, Sam Carp spoke to MLB a few weeks ago about their international expansion plans. They're going to be bringing the Yankees and the Red Sox. Have I got that right? I think that's right, yeah. There we go. I couldn't ask Google. Ask me. It's fine. I know. Sam Carp a few weeks ago spoke to Kellum Salter, who's the um, director of growth and strategy for EMEA for MLB. They are going to approach the whole UK market games thing very differently. Um, we don't want to emulate the NFL and NBA is their their approach. They feel that they don't have an installed fan base that they're immediately kind of convening with, with by coming over here, basically. And they are aware that they need to kind of introduce people to baseball in a way that perhaps basketball, um, you know, the NBA and NFL didn't initially. So it'll be interesting to see how they fare. One organization, Mike, that's been here now for over a decade playing regular season games is the NFL. Their London series ended on Sunday, as we're speaking, um, Jacksonville Jaguars taking on the Philadelphia Eagles at Wembley Stadium. Three games at Wembley Stadium this year. Tottenham Hotspur's new ground was also meant to be involved, but that the slippages in uh, in construction with that means that it will make its debut next year. So what an opportune time to catch up with Mark Waller, who is the EVP of international for the NFL. 
uh, I spoke to him just ahead of that game um, about the league's experiences this year, its uh, expectations for years ahead, the impact of games in Mexico and and potentially in countries like Germany and China uh, and a few other things besides. Let's take a listen to that, Mike. A busy period for you. Yeah, great period for us. It's always always exciting when the games come over, and this time we obviously we have the three games on consecutive uh, weekends, so that was that was planned. So that's good. We weren't planning to be three times at Wembley, um, so obviously that put a little pressure on us operationally, and be interesting to see how the the field plays for the third game. But it's it stood up well to the first two. So let's let's go with that. First of all, I mean that's. A position you've not been in for a few years now, where you've only had one stadium in play mm-hmm. uh, in the UK. What's the impact of that been in, in your preparation? We we always knew when we were working with Tottenham that it was going to be a tight time schedule this year to get the stadium ready for our game. So we always had a contingency plan in place to go to Wembley for all three games. It, it works for us logistically, obviously, to be in one venue only and the fact that they had the availability and it coincided with the international break weekend obviously so it worked it worked for us from from that standpoint disappointing not to be able to help open the Tottenham Stadium it's Mm. going to be an amazing venue and it would have been great to be able to give our fans that that chance to be in there right at the at the beginning of the, the stadium opening but we'll be back next year we'll play two games at Tottenham and two at Wembley uh, next year and, and feel really good yeah. about that. Yeah, what's, um, what's the impact of, of switching to that one venue in terms of what effects it have on your logistical streams, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, the, um, I mean the positive impacts were we were able to add essentially 20,000 tickets at very short notice because we went from Tottenham planning to be at sort of 62, 64,000 and Wembley as you know for us is 84 so we were it was great to be able to add 20,000 um, tickets at late short notice and sell those quickly so that was a, clearly an operational um, challenge for us but one that went very smoothly. Mm. Um, moving the game to Wembley since we were already planning two games at Wembley the operational moves is, were more around things like team so changing team hotels since we weren't going to be staying out that way and moving in to be closer to Wembley changing team training facilities and schedules so a lot of those sort of very operational um, details but the fact that we were already geared up to be in Wembley for two games at the the sort of playing of the game level just advanced everything by a week to ten days yeah yeah, what now is the process with Tottenham? We'll, we'll come back to Wembley for, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Sure. But what's the process with Tottenham now, uh, going into next year's game? Which, you know, rather than being almost straight after the test events, you're going to have a stadium that's going to have been six months maybe in operation. Yeah, there, there's definitely there. Sadly, some benefits to going later. We'll have a lot more learning from Tottenham on how the ground works, how the transport infrastructure works for them they're obviously taking in a lot more fans than in the new stadium than they were in the old so they'll get a lot of operational learnings and game day 
learnings and we'll get a chance to see yeah a lot of games there and and work through our own logistical plans i think as a result we should be much better prepared mm. um for tottenham than we would have been going in so early um so that's a that's a benefit i think we'll also have you know more time to kind of think through what do we do in and around the games and not just the playing of the game itself but what can we do in the community, what sort of events can we stage there um, to create you know, atmosphere for our fans and for the local residents? We want the the residents to really see the benefit of bringing in a, a very different fan um, for the day, and that those fans come for the day and they come to to have a good day out. So I think we'll be able to work to to really help you know, raise the profile of what our fans will do and the investment that they'll ultimately make in the community. Yeah, chance to run the pitches as well. Yeah, <laughs> that too. That's that too. A new one. Yes, for a lot of people chance to test the chest, test the mechanics and and see that it, that it all works. It's it's probably operationally, yeah. As I said, it's probably operationally better for us to be late, but definitely ultimately it was really disappointing. Mm. Now the the Jaguars are here this weekend. Yep. Um, how often they're going to be back in the future, we don't know. But it, it would seem from recent events that Shahid Khan, their owner, is very keen for them to be back very often and, and you know, has gone to the, the extent of making a bit of Wembley Stadium. I mean, how much of that conversation were you involved in? Not, not that much. I mean, the, yeah, our owners are, are you know, entrepreneurial businessmen in their own rights as well as owners of, of NFL teams. And so... Shad's interest in in Wembley is is sort of twofold. It's it's obviously an NFL interest in that he's committed to playing at least a game a year a year here, and he loves it. And the team does very well when they when they play here. So we have a we obviously have an interest in it. But ultimately, yeah, Shad owns a, a lot of assets, and many of which are not NFL um, related directly or indirectly. And and so Wembley for him was very much an asset that that he's looking at. Uh, for his own, yeah, for his own portfolio, not just as an as an NFL mm. venue, and so yeah, we were somewhat involved, obviously, because we have a, a relationship with Wembley and a long one and a good one, um, but not direct. We were not directly involved in any of the negotiations no, course, that yeah. went on. Yeah, but I mean, had you did you become in any way advanced with thoughts around you know contingencies for if, if the Jaguars? become owners of that venue in terms of how you manage um, operations at Wembley or even going a little bit further along if the Jaguars chose to make that a home? Yeah, well, to take those in two parts. The, operationally, not really, because it already works really well for us and for the Jags. And so whether it's owned by the FA or, you know, would have been owned by Shad didn't really doesn't really make a great deal of difference. Does it become then like almost like a Super Bowl relationship where you know one of the teams owns the stadium? Yeah, it's it's it. it's like it's like any relationship where the league is running a game. It's it's a yeah it's a it, obviously it's a we've got a great relationship with all of our teams, but there's a business aspect to it, and and we yeah as we are with Super Bowl and other events, we we'd be arranging a contractual arrangement with. Chad and, and, and his group if they owned Wembley but it works for us mm. right so there's our, our, our sense was yeah hey, hey if he owns it it'll it'll just be an added bonus um, for us in, in terms of the the sort of what happens if you ever move there I've, I've always sort of tried to be very explicit that 
we we as the league don't that those are not decisions we make they're made by our owners um, our, our job is to really create the, the position where the market is ready the stadiums are, are ready the the market works mm. for a team and then owners will decide and I always refer back to LA where we were out of LA for a long time and now we have two teams going mm. and the reason we have two teams going is because owners decided that they wanted to build a stadium there and they wanted to move teams there yeah. um, it wasn't a league driven initiative it was the these are owner decisions but I think we've done great work at, at making the market ready yeah the fan base is big enough the stadiums are there yeah we'll, we'll come back to LA in just a second mm -hmm. but um, obviously we have competition almost in the in the London market for who who is going to look to secure more games mm -hmm. because Tottenham have made a, a very big statement yep uh, in, in terms of how they've constructed the stadium um, and Wembley as you say has a long standing relationship and now it, it seems a very very good relationship mm -hmm. with one of the returning teams yep um, where where do you see that developing I mean is it a case of trying to create as much for those two venues to share in the future is it a case that you know, they, they might take on different elements of, you know, if, if a team played a greater proportion of the games here, they might be based in one, and then you have the international series in another. What's, how do you manage those two now over the next 10 years with, with Tottenham's, uh, Tottenham's deal? Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't ever like to prejudge an outcome. Um, I think the beauty is we have choices, and Twickenham is a choice as well, by the way. <coughs> we, we played three games there, and that, those went those went well as well. So I don't believe that you have to have a home in a physical stadium. You could, we could have a home in two or three stadiums. It's yeah, the, the notion that a fan base is only going to be a fan of one team in one stadium, I don't, I don't think stands the test of the modern world. That was when teams were community-based and most of the talent came from within the community and that's what created the the home stadium. Mm. So that the home now is a different concept. So I think you could have yeah, multiple games being played in multiple stadiums by the same home team. I don't yeah. I don't think that's impossible. What's the distance between Wembley and Tottenham? It's yeah. Yeah. A few miles. Yeah. One of the teams, one of the other teams that have come over this year and, and you alluded to their move, um, was was the Chargers. Mm -hmm. Um it's been difficult for them locally to to garner as much support as they had in, in San Diego yep. and it's, it's led to some kind of uh, reviews of revenue projections mm -hmm. and, and so on um, you know they're, they're, I'm sure they are committed to that to that move it was yep. it was, uh, it was a big one for them but what was there anything that you experienced or anything that you had to put into place here for a team that is in a new identity uh, you know, and, and exposing them to, to an unfamiliar unfamiliar territory. And was there anything that you planned for or anything in order to generate more interest around them or in order to, you know, perhaps generate more ticket interest around mm -hmm. them? Um, or is that something, are you still kind of dealing with everything at a kind of league-wide, league fan base level when it comes to... Yeah, no, no well, first of all, fortunately for us, we, we've never had to really focus on having to sell any particular team or, or match-up. Um, because the demand is 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 so good, 
and the demand, as you say, is for us is our fans are, at, at the moment the fans that come are fans of all thirty-two teams. As you, you, you've been to our games, mm. you'll know, you know it's it's not just yeah. Chargers and Titans fans. Bag of Skittles for somebody. Bag of Skittles. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember who said that. Colors of the Rainbow or yeah. Bag of Skittles, whatever. But yeah, no, it's. Um, but it's a, it's a it, so so in that respect, no, we don't we don't do anything specific. Obviously, it's a Chargers home game, so we do work with them on the game show presentation and the video boarding and the color scheming and and all of the branding that goes on around the stadium. But nothing, yeah, nothing beyond the the sort of operational and, and executional elements. Mm. Is that something that's remained relatively consistent or is it something you're starting to see changing the, the nature of the UK fan base for NFL? Definitely changing um, and I think the most obvious example we've seen of that was the Seahawks Raiders uh, game where that was that was definitely a Seahawks crowd mm. there was a overwhelming preponderance of Seahawks fans and yeah, Seahawks chants. Saw a couple in the pub on Friday night. Yeah, they, you know, they 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 travelled, um, they travelled long and far. And the other great thing, which I think is a real reflection of the work we've done, is the Seahawks have only been a big team in the last ten years, mm-hmm. right? So that fan base that we attracted is definitely a new set of fans who've come in and and become fans of the Seahawks, um, and the vast majority, obviously, from the UK and, and Europe. And so we're definitely seeing in the fan base that we're attracting a younger profile, more 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 recent fans of the game, which is obviously the strategy. Um, but you're also getting more fans of a specific team, which is great. That's ultimately you want it to go from this sort of NFL community of, of fans, the Skittles or whatever you want to um, call them, that are getting together as a community to celebrate the game. And you would hope and aim for mm. over time more and more fans of specific teams yeah mm. and how is that affecting what you do commercially what you know you're, you're selling more partnerships that are, are UK centric yep. um, just for men is, is one example mm-hmm. Subway, yeah, the, the yeah. brand conference yeah. in Subway what are you now selling to them how is that, that well that's that's a great I mean that's a great testament to the proposition now is really resonating locally as opposed to uh, oh I'm a global partner of the NFLs and I get to you know, be part of the UK games in addition to the other assets. It's now, as you rightly point out, for both Subway and Just for Men, those are UK specific um, uh, arrangements and that shows the strength that we're starting to build in the marketplace from a fan demographic perspective and from a brand strength perspective. So again, those, all of those things, the BBC shows, that again, those, those are just to me indicators that we've taken on a, a meaning and a relevance that is beyond just being a niche proposition. Yeah. Um, and that's that was the goal, uh, and is the goal, is to become a mainstream sport. And I think now in, in the autumn calendar, we're a meaningful part of the UK sporting calendar. And it's an amazing calendar. You know, if you think of soccer and rugby and golf and all of the things that that are part of the UK sporting calendar for us to have carved out a meaningful presence in that that, that, that's a big deal I think yeah yeah um on from the UK from for the NFL Mm -hmm. uh on from the UK to Mexico yep next month um what a game what a game we've got another and another few years uh in the books for that as Mm -hmm. well another I think it's another three years yep 
Um, I mean, there's an NFL Mexico division. That, yeah, that office. Yep. With mm-hmm. um, things like localization and, yep. and you know uh, Spanish language content and, yep. and so on. Um, but there's also discussions of games, regular season games, maybe, but certainly games in Germany and mm-hmm. China and, uh, and other other yep. countries around the world. What role will you play in that discussion? And, and you know, will it be something where it's a case of setting up more satellites to oversee that, or will there become a bigger kind of more coherent NFL international division? How, how is that going to? The ultimately, the the strategies have to be driven at the local level. So the games, if it's playing of games, have to work as part of a, a broader initiative. So the, yeah, we have an office in Mexico. They they oversee the game in Mexico in the same way as the office here oversees the UK uh, games. There are there are certain markets. China, if we were ever to play a game there, we would have to rely heavily on US ex- experience and expertise and staffing because we have an office in China. It's four people, um, and so the the goal is to get to it being localized and supported and, and run locally as part of the go-to-market strategy. Um, so wherever we can, we would do that. If we were to go to Germany, I can't imagine that we would want to go to Germany without having a local office presence and, and local staff on the ground. We might use a number of people from, yeah. from this office to help support it with the expertise and learning that they've got from the games we've done here. But local, you know, being local is is an important part of, of ultimately executing these things. Mm. I think our biggest issue is the inventory of games, right? In in choosing to play regular season games rather than preseason games or, or friendlies, we've chosen a, a, a path that resonates most powerfully, but requires real work to get the inventory to to play. Yeah. Um, so. That's one of the things holding us back at the moment from doing more is we don't have home teams willing to give up, give up their game. So in that context and in the context of, um, of what you've achieved here in the context of what might be to come, I suppose especially in Germany because that's going to be, you know, that's still local. Mm-hmm. As, as the distance between Berlin yep. and London is yep. not as, as great as the distance between, you know, London mm-hmm. and the East Coast. Um, what's next for the NFL International Series? I'd like to think that we get to to add another market to our belts. I'd like to think that we could get either back to Canada, which we haven't been to for for quite a while, or into into Germany. And I, I and again, I go back. I, the playing of games is part of a plan and a strategy for a geography. So I, I'm not interested in oh, let's play a game in Paris or let's play mm-hmm. a game you know, in, in Madrid or anything like that. I'm interested in. Where are we likely to build long-term, sustainable, growing fan bases, and how do you use the games as a platform to do that? And and I do think the blueprint that we've created here is is a powerful one. We've built stadiums to play in, which you know, ten years ago, Wembley was being built, and it wasn't even clear that yeah we'd be able to do that successfully. I don't think we'd have two weekly shows on the BBC if we weren't playing games in the UK and, and making the sort of market commitments that we've made. If there were no UK games, I, I doubt the BBC would be working with us on, on that sort of programming content. So the games enable you to do so much more locally that you wouldn't get to without playing the games. Yeah. 
And just one more one more thought to, to finish on. I mean, obviously, it's been an enormously interesting period in, in the NFL's history mm-hmm. in the US yep. with some of the discussions that have been going on culturally yep. um, and also some of the, the player safety issues mm-hmm. and, and so on. Um, how are those received? How, what kind of echoes do you get of those among your fan base in, in the UK? So let's, let's split them because the echoes, I think, are, are different. Mm. The player safety, safety of the athlete, is a universal issue in, in all sports. Um, and so it resonates uh, and, and matters to our fans as it does to, uh, to fans in the States. And before the first game this year, we, ho- we actually hosted a, a conference here, a multi-sport conference around player health and safety. And we had equestrian and rugby and uh, you know, representatives from, from many different sports. So that, that issue is, I think, consistent. Um, and I think we're at the forefront, I think we're at the forefront of, of tackling um, those issues and and they matter to our, our fans the the cultural and and sort of social issues m- m- it's not that they matter less but they're they're less meaningful the the anthem protest if you're an American that's a deeply powerful emotional issue mm. if you're not American it's more of an intellectual curiosity and in many respects it's sort of a lot of our fans were kind of, yeah, I would expect there to be debate in the US and that's what democracy is all about. People yeah. can express their views and other people can, can oppose them. It, it, but it, it's, it's, it's a much less intense issue internationally. Somebody asked me the other day, had it impacted us negatively? And, and my answer was very definitively, no, it's not, because it kind of affirms that view of the states as a place where debate takes place and it takes place openly and publicly and you get to see contrasting views. Have you learned anything from that that you wouldn't have learned just through seeing those two fan bases in a sporting contact? I, th- I think we've, we've learned from day one that you, you can't take a sport that comes from a specific country and just drop it in somewhere else without really understanding the the cultural nuances that what's different and what will they like that you bring over and what the what will they not and I suspect if you talk to fans when we did the first game they would tell you that the way we present the game now is is fundamentally different and, and better because we've thought really hard over the 12 years about what does a UK fan need? What sort of information do they care about? What matters to them? Whereas when we started, we probably just took the game, dropped it in, and 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 sort of see how it goes. But again, I go back to the BBC show. It's not an accident that that show is presented by Mark Chapman, a Brit, OCU Manura, a Nigerian with roots in the UK but knows the US, and and Jason Bell similarly knows both sides of the Atlantic. We wanted people who would be truly sensitive to what's going to work for Brits. Mm. Um, and interestingly, I don't know if you, if you watch the NFL Network, the game day morning show, that um, we've got them here this week. Mm. And just chatting to them, and they've kind of gone, wow, we've, we've really had to think hard about 
the content that we've got and what we're doing here now that we're here it's very different than when you do the show in the US there's yeah there's, there's cultural nuances that you want to capture mm. I think they spent five minutes this morning you know reflecting on Arsenal game last night that they went to and how different the crowds were and the singing and the chanting and how different that is from a US um, experience so yeah. definitely those cultural things matter yeah. alright thanks very much Mark not at all good to see you good to see you Okay, right. Well, thanks to thanks to Mark Waller uh, for his thoughts there. It was the process of globalization, really, and how rights holders like the NFL, the NBA, the MLB uh, go about growing their brands overseas, and the way that the you know the US leagues do it is an interesting counterpoint to how to return to our kind of initial comments in this podcast you know, to how FIFA has, is, is going about growing the game and how, well, not, not just FIFA, the world of soccer in general and how uh, La Liga is aiming to, for example, is aiming to grow its brand in the US going mm. the other way. Yeah, it's interesting. Unlike um, unlike in, in soccer, obviously these leagues have the power both by brand brand recognition in terms of the, the kind of calibre of the competitions, certainly in the NFL's case, in terms of the geographic spread of the sport, they can act a lot more unilaterally certainly within the leagues themselves the owners obviously have to kind of work collegiately to to come up with with these various schemes but um yeah it's within the purview of the nfl to to take as many games as its teams can stand to different markets and they can just do that let's play in another country okay so long as they can make it happen logistically and not upset too many fans not so in soccer and something that we forgot to talk about because there was just so much to talk about and so much of it was uh was quite dense stuff a little bit earlier on uh one of the decisions that the fifa council took was to not support the efforts of la liga in staging a game in miami um next year this season but next year between barcelona and girona yeah and is there is there any kind of political dynamic here or is this simply you know according to fifa's statutes or or rules they do not permit competitive games of any league to be played on foreign soil. I think it is, it's that they have to give their um, assent to it, basically. It would have opened everything up, I suppose, for other leagues to, to pursue similar strategies. But what we might end up seeing uh, is um, collaborative leagues, regional leagues involving different national associations. So, you know, Mexico, Canada and, and the US have, there's been some discussion of that. There's been a uh, more advanced discussion about further links between Liga MX and um, uh, and MLS. There's been talk of this North Atlantic League uh, involving you know some of the some of the leagues that have been marginalised a little bit by by the growth of the Big Five in Europe. So the likes of Belgium and, and the Netherlands and Scotland and so on. So yeah, that could be the that could be the point of development that we that we do see how easy it becomes for the likes of La Liga to take their games overseas uh, is another matter. But anyway, we have talked for quite long enough this week. Thanks very much to Mark Waller for his contribution. Uh, thank you, Mike, for yours. Thank you, Owen. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to me. Always a pleasure. Mm. Uh, and thanks to all of you for listening. Speak to you next week. Bye bye.